So I hope you're feeling well and enjoyed your lunch and ready to study the Word. So let's pray together. Father, thank you for your goodness. We love you. We, we adore you. We worship you. You are great and a mighty God. We stand in awe of all that we read in the Word of God. We stand in awe at all that we see in your incredible creation. We stand in awe when we think about how much you love us. Uh, so very much that you gave Jesus to die on the cross, to arise from the grave, in order that we might have our sins forgiven, have eternal life, to be with you forever, and to bring glory to your name while we're here. And so we thank you for that. Ask today that you will use the food to strengthen and nourish our bodies. Thank you for the good, sweet fellowship that we've enjoyed. And I pray now that you will speak to us from your precious word. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. All right, chapter 2, verse 18. The Lord God said, It is not good for the man to be alone. I will make him a helper suitable for him. Now the Lord God had formed out of the ground all the wild animals and all the birds in the sky. He brought them to the man to see what he would name them. And whatever the man called each living creature, that was its name. So the man gave names to all the livestock, the birds in the sky, and all the wild animals, but for Adam no suitable helper was found. So we'll stop there for a, for a moment. God um, makes Adam aware now that he is alone. There's no <clears throat> indication in the scripture that Adam recognized it until until now. And he now knows that he's alone. The, the naming of the menagerie of the animals was a big task. And Adam had the sovereign naming function. And what an amazing um, span of time that must have been when the animals came before him and he got to pick their names. There's a classic Old Testament commentary uh, written by Colin Dalich, a couple of Germans. And in it they say, Adam is not merely naming animals on the basis of their outward characteristics, but as a deep and direct insight into the nature of the animals. For the life of me, I never would have thought of that if I'd lived to be a thousand. But when I've reflected on it, I thought, you know what? I think they've got something there. Now, I, I know Adam wasn't speaking English when he named the animals, but our translation of the words... Fits, doesn't it? I think I mentioned this last time. I mean, think about a monkey. Doesn't the term just fit? I mean, isn't that perfect? Uh, we think of a monkey and usually we laugh. Um, elephant. What do you think of? Elephant just sounds like a big animal with a tusk, a snout, tusks. Donkey. But don't be looking, turning your head. He probably didn't come today. Donkey. Uh, stubborn. Just, the word just fits. Gorilla. Ooh, fearsome. So I think about all that, and, and I don't know where Colin Dalich came up with that. But uh, as I reflect upon it, I think, that you know what? I think they got something there. That's pretty, that's pretty on target. Well, Adam became aware that no animal corresponded to him. And in naming the animals, God prepared Adam to value his helper. That makes sense? 
In naming the animals, God prepared Adam to value his helper. Now, let's read verses 21 to 23. And here she is. And so the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. And while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and then closed up the place with flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man, and he brought her to the man. And the man said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh, and she shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. Okay, we'll stop there. Then we'll get to marriage in a minute, 24 and 25. So the woman is created, Eve. She... Adam fell into a deep and a heavy sleep that was God-ordained. Did you notice that? God caused Adam to fall into the very, very deep sleep. I guess sort of anesthetized him because of what was about to happen to his body. And so the Bible says that God formed Eve out of the rib of Adam. Now, all kinds of folks had looked at that and called it Metaphor and one thing and then another. And, but if you're looking at the Hebrew, you, you can't get away with that. I mean, if you're going to be true to what the text says, it's not a metaphor. It is actually Adam's rib. You can try to dance around that all you want to. And go right ahead if you want to. But if you're going to go be honest with the text, it says, and it means what it says that Eve was created out of the rib of, of Adam. Uh, Adam was not created uh, ex nihilo. You know what that means? Out of nothing. Adam was not created out of nothing. Adam was created out from the dust of the earth. Eve was not created ex nihilo. She was not created out of nothing. She was made of the same stuff as man, Adam, Bone, flesh, and DNA. Same thing. The first person to be created from a living being was Eve, and she shared the image of God, just as Adam did. The woman's creation out of Adam is the basis for her equality. Out of his side to be equal with him, under his arms to be protected by him, and near his heart to be his beloved. And um, she was stunning. I mean, she was stunning. Um, Adam responds, and I know in English it's hard for us to pick this up, but this is exclamatory language by, by Adam. Uh, it is as if Adam is looking at Eve and he says, wow, <laughs> you know, wow. That's really, uh, could be very literal, wow. A cry of victory uh, for Adam. This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. And she shall be called woman for she was taken out of, uh, out of man. The first human words quoted in the scripture. Did you get, did you notice that? So far we haven't, it's not recorded anything that Adam said, although we know he named the animals, but as far as a quote from Adam, this is the first. Uh, 
And so he looks at Eve and he says, wow, he is astonished and in anticipation of the relationship that they're going to have. Then you get to verse 24 and 25, and we find that marriage is ordained. This is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife, and they become one flesh. Adam and his wife were both naked, and they felt no shame. Pretty uh, short, to the point, scripture. Moses' words were divine revelation, and Jesus quotes them in Matthew chapter 19, beginning with verse 4, when Jesus said, Have you read that at the beginning the Creator made them male and female and said, For this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh? So they were no longer, they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. Um, now, we don't have time for a sermon on that passage, but I'll, I'm telling you, that is powerful and potent and to the point. But he quotes what Moses writes in Genesis, but then with, for, for emphasis, when he says the two will become one flesh, the implications of that are powerful. When we marry, we are in the eyes of God one flesh. That's why you get over to First um, Corinthians, and the Scripture is very direct in warning us to not violate that one flesh relationship. Do not bring sin into the marital relationship and, and thinking in terms of the man, when he warns man not to commit adultery, he reminds us that when we do that, it's, it's almost like bringing that other woman into the bed with your wife being right there also powerful word picture. So he also says, what God's joined together, let no one separate. No one come between a husband and a wife and their very, very sacred relationship. So in that 24th verse, he says that a man leaves his father and mother, letting us know that from this point forward, a man's first loyalty and obligation is no longer to mom and dad, it is now to his wife. It is now to his wife. And they are to be united. So there is the, the leaving and there is the uniting. I think King James uses the term cleaved. Leave and cleave. Leave your father and mother and cleave to your wife, which in more up-to-date language, it means to be united with your wife. Hold fast to her. Stick to her. Marriage is a covenant. A covenant between a man and a woman. And and leaving and uniting involves, don't often think about this, but the, the, the text makes it clear, leaving and uniting is a public declaration in God's sight. 
It's not a hidden relationship. It's a public declaration in the sight of God. I'm leaving and I'm cleaving, to use King James language. I'm leaving and I'm uniting with this woman till death do us part. Marriage is not private. It is a declaration of our intent for life. And it is a, a declaration of, um, of recognition that others know and see we are one. We are one flesh in God, in Christ. So God, the church, the family... Um, all of us together declare that a marriage is one man and one woman freely and totally committed to one another for life. So marriage is instituted here in the very second book of the Bible. I've already read from uh, Jesus' quote in Matthew. Let me remind you of what Paul said in Ephesians chapter Chapter 5, for this reason a man will leave his father and mother, there it is again, and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. And then he tells us something that you will not, you, if you're just reading the Bible for the first time, you're not going to know this in Genesis chapter 2, but, but getting here you know it, we know it, and, and this is the reminder, this is a profound mystery. But I'm talking about Christ and the church. So what is he telling us? The marriage relationship is a picture of the relationship between Christ and his church. And I kind of get goosebumps when I think about that. I mean, that is just astounding. The marriage relationship, the commitment of husband and wife is like to the commitment of Christ as the bridegroom and the church as the bride. We are the bride. He's the bridegroom. What a beautiful picture of our of our relationship with the Lord. And so, uh, from the text here, we know that marriage is monogamous, uh, heterosexual. It's a monogamous, heterosexual relationship from creation to this point in time. Nothing's changed. Man may have changed his opinion. But what God wrote and ordained has not changed at all, not even one iota. There is in the text, in just this brief passage, an elevation of love, uh, sexuality, and humanity. Not an elevation of feelings, but an elevation of love and sexuality and humanity. We can be on dangerous ground when we live our life based on feelings. But we live our lives based on facts as we find them in the Word of God. So marriage is ordained. And the last little lead-in to chapter 3 reminds us that Adam and Eve were both naked and they felt no shame. Why should they? Sin has not entered into the world yet. So there was no shame. We get to chapter 3 and we read about the fall. And I'm not talking about the seasons. Chapter 3 verse 1. Now the serpent 
was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, We may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it or you will die. You will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some of it, some and ate it. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they realized that they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. The first five verses are a dialogue to dissent. D-E-S-C-E-N-T. The serpent, we like to call him a snake is shrewd and under the control of Satan, and the New Testament identifies the serpent as the devil. For support for that statement, I refer you to Revelation chapter 12, verse 9, which says, The great dragon was hurled down, that ancient serpent called the devil or Satan who leads the whole world astray. He was hurled to the earth and his angels with him. And then uh, another verse, chapter 20, verse 2, Revelation. He seized the dragon, that ancient serpent who is the devil or Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. God's Word, back to chapter 3, God's Word is attacked. It's a frontal assault. You do know, I think I said this Last week, the fall came about because Adam and Eve stepped outside the will of God as was given them expressly by the Word of God. God's Word is attacked. God's Word is responsible for everything that Eve and Adam were enjoying, day and night, the sun and the moon, the blue sky, the garden. It is God's Word that is responsible for all of that. And you would think, wouldn't you, that Satan's attack would fall on deaf ears that Adam and Eve would not give the serpent the time of day. The serpent's question He introduces an assumption that God's Word is subject to our judgment. And that's where man gets into trouble. When we assume that the Word of God is subject to our judgment, we are in trouble. He says it this way, Did God really say? There is a frontal assault on the Word of God. I mentioned this last week in these few verses in chapter 3 that the serpent and Eve avoid the words Yahweh Elohim. Remember there had been a shift in chapter 2 to the words Yahweh Elohim, the Lord God, the majestic creator. 
Yahweh is the personal covenant maker, the, the very personal word for God. Elohim, the creator God, the serpent and Eve, in, in her response, avoid the personal word Yahweh. I find that to be utterly fascinating. They avoided that personal word for God. They used the less personal term, Elohim, creator. So he leaves out, she leaves out Yahweh, Yahweh Elohim. Satan avoids the personal covenant name, Elohim. Now, he says it this way, or rather Yahweh, he leaves it out. Did Elohim really say? And Eve followed right behind him and did the same thing. Satan's question implies a divine stinginess. You should look at it again. Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? Do you see the implication there? You know, is, is God robbing you of some wonderful joy that you might experience if you could really eat of any tree in the garden? The implication is God is a stingy God. He really doesn't want you to have everything that you deserve. Eve seems oblivious to Satan's attack. It's very subtle. She seems oblivious. And the seed of doubt about the Word of God has been planted in her heart and in her mind. Now, at this point, Eve had a chance to set him straight. Instead, she utters three sad statements. Three sad statements. In the first statement, she diminishes the word. In the second statement, she added to God's word. And in the third statement, she softens God's word. So I want to uh, explain those. Three things. Diminishing the word, adding to the word, and softening the word. First of all, she minimizes God's word because notice her reply. We may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle garden. Now notice, look back at that first sentence. We may eat fruit from the trees in the garden. What did God say? You may eat fruit from every tree in the garden, except one. She leaves out the word every. She doesn't quote God accurately. She leaves out the word every. By doing so, she talks as if she has already bought into Satan's argument that God is stingy. She's minimizing the provision of God. I might call her response rather unenthusiastic about all that God has provided for her and and for Adam. We may eat of the fruit of the trees. Don't you want to think if you were responding to the serpent's question, you would say, we can eat of the fruit of every tree in the garden except the one. She leaves out every. So do you already see that she's already on the slippery slope, so to speak? Secondly, 
She adds to the Word of God. Can you see where she does that? She says, we're not supposed to eat of that tree, nor are we supposed to touch it. God didn't say that. God didn't say anything about touching the tree. He just said, don't eat of it. But she says, we're not even supposed to touch it. So in doing so, she's adding to the Word of God. And what she's doing is she's magnifying God's strictness. And I want to tell you something. When we don't like God's prohibition, we always try to make it sound worse than it is. Well, God doesn't want me to have any fun. We'll always make it worse. God says, don't do this. So we'll make it worse and make it like, well, I'm really the innocent victim here. If God wasn't so mean or if God wasn't so restrictive, we could have more fun in life. So do you see where Eve's headed? Just little subtle things, but it speaks of what's happening in her life, in her heart. Thirdly, she softens the word of God. You must not touch it. She said, then notice the last phrase, or you will die. What did God say? You shall certainly die. Verse 17, now that sounds so subtle. I mean, what's the big deal? But she's softening what God said, where he said, you shall certainly die. She removes the certitude of death. So Eve has put herself in harm's way. Satan is, it would seem, emboldened by her response. You will not certainly die, he replies. You will not certainly die. In, in the Hebrew, the not comes before the certainly die, which is important. It's like, if I could word it this way, Satan is saying, in your face, God, not certainly die. You will not certainly die. We might say, we might word it, well, you will certainly not die. Nope. Hebrew says, you will not Certainly die. Not being before the certainly die is important. So this is an in-your-face contradiction toward God on the part of the adversary. Now, I find it interesting that the doctrine of divine judgment is the first doctrine to be attacked. Modern culture loathes the thought of divine judgment. You see that? It's very 2018. Man loathes the thought of a divine judgment. Man will give intellectual assent to the love of God, which is so important. But when it comes to divine judgment, not on your life. Ephesians 2, 1 and 2 addresses that. Paul says, As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. So this refusal to want to believe in a divine judgment 
is simply the work of the adversaries, the work of Satan, according to Paul in Ephesians 2. So, the dialogue. Satan offers a question based on a perversion of God's word. Eve then begins to question his word, evidenced by her revisions of the word. Eve should have recoiled in horror and run away. It's what she should have done. Adam should have stepped up and upheld the word of God. Instead, both Adam and Eve seem to be filled with some kind of anticipation of what's going to happen next. God's goodness is attacked. Encouraged by the vulnerability of the first couple, Satan's attack attacks God's goodness. Look again at verse 5. For God knows that when you eat from this fruit of this tree, your eyes will be opened and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. So what Satan's doing in verse 5, he is casting God in an ugly light. God doesn't want you to know what he knows. God doesn't want you to soar to the heights to which you should soar. God is repressive and jealous that you might soar too high. What a slur on God's character on the part of the adversary. The lie holds out the lure of divinity. You will be like God. And when he says that, he is inviting Adam and Eve to experience moral autonomy, which is very 2018. In other words, I know what's right for me. I know what's wrong for me, and don't you tell me what's right and wrong. I'll do what I want to do. Very 2018, and the devil is introducing that right now into the heart of Adam and Eve. So we come to verse 6 and 7, and we find the descent. That's where we'll have to start next time. Now, I'm going to go ahead and say something. The picture that many have given through the years of this event has been of Eve and the serpent. She falls. Adam comes along whistling. Wonderful day, isn't it, Eve? And she tempts him with the fruit, and he says, oh, takes a bite. That's not the way it was at all. Adam was there the whole time. He saw everything. He heard everything. He is the first example of the passive male. (laughs) Instead of saying to the serpent, beat it or I'm going to break your head, he listens passively because when the serpent speaks and he says, you... Did you know that the you is plural? It's not singular. If Eve had been standing there and Adam wasn't anywhere in sight, the serpent would have used the word you singular. Instead, he uses the word you plural. Adam's standing right there. And the text itself says, 
when she gave, turned to give of the fruit to Adam, that he was right there with her. So the pictures of Adam kind of wandered in and this thought that Adam might have been a tad naive and innocent bologna sausage. <laughs> in fact, it makes me mad at Adam. Because <laughs> he could have stopped the whole thing. And that's what he should have done, but he didn't. Okay, well, we'll hit some detail on that uh, next time. Thank you for being here. Father, thank you. You are so gracious and good to us. We love you. And, uh, Father, the, the, the passage on the fall simply reminds us to be on our guard for the adversary, the devils, like a roaring lion prowling around, seeking whom he may deceive and destroy. So help us to be certain that each day we put on the full armor of God, that we might stand against the wiles of the devil. Bless each of us now as we go to our responsibilities of the afternoon. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. God bless you.